his mind. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candace Anderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Joseph Simkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, author, psychic, spellcaster, root worker, and witch. You can find her at MsAida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. You can find Ginger at TarotByGinger.com, and she is a tarot reader, evidential medium, and healer. And you can find her at TarotByGinger.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Peter Ells, and we are here to talk about about pan idealism i think that's what it was yeah thanks for coming on okay thank you so um what is pan idealism okay well pan idealism is my particular attempt to solve the mind body problem um the mind body problem is one of the most uh difficult and important uh, problems there is and I don't believe it has a scientific solution people have been working on this problem for hundreds of years what's the problem uh, though like, like, like is the problem I mean isn't the mind part of the body or body maybe part of the mind well um, the most common approach is that mind is part of the body mm -hmm. that um, mind has a complete um, explanation of physical terms uh, uh, but nobody has come anywhere close to giving a convincing explanation of this um, the particular example is uh, uh, consider pain the feeling of pain um, you can describe, give a scientific description of pain behavior and goings on, physical goings on, uh, in the brain that are very closely correlated with that behavior. Uh, but you can't explain why the feeling exists. Um, so that's the problem. Hmm. So, and how does pan-idealism solve the problem? Um, well, it combines two ideas. Uh, the first is that uh, panpsychism, which is that um, mind is everywhere throughout the universe, is mm -hmm. kind of basic, even in the fundamental particles of nature. And then the other part is idealism which instead of taking physics as being basic, um, you take mind as being basic. So the basic ingredients of the cosmos are primitive minds, most of which are extremely primitive, and also agency. Uh, 
So both those things, minds and agency, are kind of mental type things. So you reduce everything uh, to mind. Um, and the reason you can do that is because the only access we have uh, to the physical world is through our experiences. And so it's obvious that in principle, you can um, reduce the entirety of physics uh, to mind-like goings-on, entities and properties. And you can regard the whole history of science, if you like, as um, goings-on in the minds of scientists. So it's these two ideas in combination that... Uh, uh, form the basis of my solution hmm. to the mind body problem. So, what is the difference between like like what you're saying and what is taught in things like Hinduism or the Buddhist philosophy, where they also will say that that everything is mind? Um, I'm not too sure. Actually, I'm not not don't have any close knowledge mm -hmm. of Hindu or Buddhist philosophy. Um, I know that uh, there's um, Bernardo Castro. Um, I don't know if you know of him. He has a, a related idea. Um, um, he has this, he is an idealist, but his concept or version of idealism is that there is one global mind um, that individual human minds or animal minds are kind of uh, manifestations of, of this uh, one unique mind. Um, uh, that's probably closer to Hindu or Buddhist ideas, but I'm not sure. So, um, my approach mm -hmm. is very closely tied to physics. Right. So I said that it could be done in principle to make this um, time principle mm -hmm. between uh, pan idealism and physics. But I, in my book, I show give the specific details of how you actually do this. Hmm. So. From a physics point of view, um, how does all this exist? I mean, when we do dig down into matter, you really kind of find out that there's really nothing there. It seems like the further we dig, the less we actually are finding. So how does any of this even happen? Well, the, uh, this is a really good point, and it's something that a lot of physicalists and a lot of scientists don't realize that how thin um, the view of the world that uh, physicalism gives them. Uh, all that science gives you is uh, the mathematical structure of the world, if you like, and also um, the mathematical laws which give the dynamics of the world. But they don't tell you 
what the um, world actually consists of. They just say the world is something which has this mathematical structure. And it, uh, but, well, you, they talk about the world obeying these mathematical laws. But uh, unless you're a, a theist, unless you believe in God, there's no one commanding these laws. They're more like descriptions of regularities, mathematical descriptions of mm -hmm. regularities. And so the picture of the world that science gives is incredibly thin and not, so uh, not nearly as substantial as many uh, physicists believe. Um, in fact, there are, there's one person, um, a physicist called Max Tebmark. He's one of the few people to realize this. And um, he has a very strange idea that um, not only our world exists, but all possible mathematical structures are equally real. Um, and this is a, uh, an amazing, uh, concept, amazingly wide conception of, of reality. Um, it, it, it's, uh, kind of forced out the way. It's not testable. And it's, it's not particularly credible. Hmm. Why isn't that credible? Well, it, it's, it's, it, it's, um, I mean, I, I don't find it. it. It would say that worlds with all possible dimensions, mm -hmm. uh, all possible dimensions of space and time, all possible physical laws, all possible constants of nature. Um, all have equal claim to be real. Hmm. And it also doesn't solve the mind-body problem. Right. I mean... Um, but it does, I think, because that's sort of the philosophy that, that I ascribe to, is that um, if, it, if it's a probability, especially a mathematical probability, it has to exist because everything seems to be formed you know, on that basis of singularity versus duality. And, and if that's the nature of the universe, then I would think that whatever's happening here, whether it's from a natural cause or a conscious cause or whatever, is going to have to run through every possibility. And all those possibilities, since it's running through them, exists because each one it's running through is it? It's trying to figure out its own origin. Hmm. Okay, I can't answer that directly. What mm -hmm. I will say that in um, quantum mechanics, um, that, that is a, a probabilistic theory, and it's unusual. You have the Schrödinger equation, which mm -hmm. is a deterministic linear equation it looks very classical um, but the only grip that the Schrodinger 
equation gives you on the real world are the probabilities um, and the it gives you that uh, the Schrodinger equations give you the probability of a certain experimental outcome. But once that outcome has happened, um, the Schrodinger equations have no longer apply. So it kind of collapses down and uh, then it evolves again from there. Mm-hmm. And quantum theory um, doesn't really tell you when and where these collapses occur. Uh, I, I mean, I think there are good reasons that um, they uh, sort of are going on everywhere mm-hmm. and uh, over all times. Um, but within the theory itself, um, the quantum theory doesn't tell you where these events happen. I think because of the quantum theory, though, is that it's eliminating time because time itself is just a measurement, but it's not an actual substance. Um, I, I think in my book, I go into a great deal of uh, uh, quantum theory, and this is because... I want to tie my theory to the fundamental physics of the world, Mm -hmm. um, which is, in essence, quantum theory. And so, um, uh, sort of part two of my book is uh, like an introduction to quantum theory that um, I guess about at the level of a first year undergraduate course on, on physics. Um, and I also give the history of quantum mechanics, um, because it's a very interesting, um, history. It's the only theory that has many interpretations. I mean, well over a dozen and you can count, uh, sort of <laughs> branches with in those dozen interpretations. Right. And ma- many of the, um, many of the interpretations, they don't give, make any experimental difference. And uh, so you can't use science to test with, between one interpretation and another. And in fact, um, although a lot of physicists kind of despise philosophy, you have to use um, philosophical ideas mm-hmm. uh, to distinguish between interpretations, which ones are better and which ones are less good. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of ironic that many scientists don't realize that they're, um, when they're arguing between interpretations, that they're actually doing philosophy, making use of philosophical ideas. Um, I mean, one of, uh, example of this is, um, Stephen Hawking, who was, who really 
dislike philosophy and was kind of contemptuous of it. But then, on the other hand, he was a very uh, keen supporter of a particular interpretation of quantum mechanics called many worlds. Now, in defending many worlds against other interpretations of quantum mechanics, he was actually doing philosophy, despite the fact that having sort of utter contempt for philosophers and mm. philosophy. Interesting. So, how did this all come about? Like, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll lay in bed thinking, and I'm like, how did any of this happen? Like, how did a speck of dust, like Earth, end up hitching itself to a flaming neutron thing and it starts rotating around it, life forms, life dies, and we start thinking and becoming aware? Like, like why and how? Yes. But, the, I mean, that's um, one of the reasons um, for panpsychism, which is my thing, um, that, uh, to say that it can't have come about where it was absent, you know, for billions of years and then suddenly appear. Um, you know, when we think about consciousness arriving, you think of it arriving uh, sort of sometime after animal life evolved. These were my initial thoughts anyway, and sort of some very simple creature sort of began to feel something very basic, like a little tip. But if there's just uh, mathematical laws determining its behavior and its physical properties, there's no way for that little tickle um, to come in. Hmm. And so Good point. one of the ways, partial ways to solve that is to say that um, consciousness or at least experience must be there in the universe right from the beginning everywhere at the most crude and primitive level and then um, agreed uh, there are things like um, cognition if you like, like the ability to reason and to develop uh, memories and to have uh, science and also for free will you need to know what the likely result of your actions will be and the future consequences um those sort of things do necessitate uh, uh sophisticated cognitive systems mm -hmm. you know um uh, but the essential thing of having experiences and being able to act on them, they must have been there from the get-go. I mean, that, that's my position. Hmm. So is my consciousness really my consciousness? Yes. I mean, that um, my... My, my theory is that a human being like body and brain included is nothing other than a 
hierarchical system of centers of experience. Some of them are very simple and act in uh, very stereotypical ways. Um, but others, um, particularly within my brain, um, act in more sophisticated way. And so my theory predicts you wouldn't have just one stream of consciousness. Um, you would have uh, many streams of consciousness going on within your head of mm -hmm. greater or lesser sophistication. And some of them um, will be dominant at one time and others would be dominant at others. So, uh, for example, if you're um, playing a piece of music, um, the telephone rings, it, it would be like one stream of consciousness which was active when you were um, playing the musical instrument. Uh, then that gets interrupted and you get another part of um, another system which answers the telephone and responds to it. So you can have kind of multiple streams of consciousness within uh, your head. Um, but the other thing is um, that... Uh, it, your stream of consciousness isn't like one string of spaghetti that exists, uh, you know, say during the day from the time you wake up mm -hmm. till the time you go to bed. So let's say 18 hours. It's not one continuous stream. It's not any, even many continuous streams. What happens is, um, you are conscious and you have a uh, consciousness of the immediate present and you make a decision that kind of decision kind of shuffles this um, stream and you get new um, a, a succeeding moment of consciousness which is kind of born afresh from your decision it, it, it's more or less um, it's not continuous with your previous uh, moment of consciousness, but it kind of depends upon it in a, uh, a logical way. So the, the, the kind of thing you have at the next moment is re closely related to what just happened previously, but it's a total new experience. It's more like a, a stream of bubbles, if you like, in a soda, uh, in a glass of champagne, rather than a continuous string, if you like. Interesting. If, if I'm, if, if you or me or anybody else is a combination of these strings of consciousness, does that eliminate the idea of a human soul? Um, more or less. I mean, what you would have is as your body degenerated, as you die, then these streams would um, 
uh, if you like, decay and simplify. So you, you would become commingled with the earth and, you know, the, the streams would fizzle, fizzle out into, uh, much simpler streams. So if you were to believe in an afterlife, something different would have to happen for you to get from death to the afterlife. Um, uh, so something else different would have to happen and different laws would have to uh, apply. Hmm. So it's no use getting um, to the afterlife in the state where you were just at death you would have to have some sort of averaging going on. So, um, you know, over your life, to get that representation of you in heaven or wherever. Um, but, uh, I mean, that involves religious uh, ideas, which I, I tend not to get involved in. Like but it does sound like you're saying that life is sort of meaningless, except for any meaning we ascribe to it. But even <laughs> then, when we die, it still ends up meaningless. Well, I I think you have to find meaning just in the finite um, things that are going on. I mean, we're finite creatures, mm -hmm. um, and it wouldn't uh it wouldn't be a better world if we lived forever in fact it would probably be a whole lot worse you know all the ecological problems we have and environmental problems would be made a whole lot worse if we were to go on living on forever at least on this planet um but i, I mean my If we talk about mean, meaning of life, um, that gets on to free will, which I also discuss in my book. Um, and the thing is, if you don't believe um, we have free will, if you don't believe we have any capability to change the course of the universe at all, um, then we're in deep trouble. But it does say um, that we are able to do this and in fact intuitively um you know most people are not philosophers or scientists believe we have this limited free will that we can choose our futures uh, um to a certain extent uh but this is incredibly difficult um to uh square with our um, scientific and our philosophical understanding. And in fact, if physicalism is true, if everything is rooted in the physical, then you can show that, um, uh, free will is impossible. Um, the reason for that is that if you're a physicalist, you assume that the basic form of causation is by physical laws. You know, going on their mathematical, mathematical way, whether mm -hmm. probabilistic or deterministic. And there's no room 
poor minds to actually do anything. And so they can't be being conscious, can't be biologically useful. Now, um, William James, who was the found, one of the founders of psychology, uh, he's the brother of Henry James, the novelist. He sort of agreed with this and, uh, he kind of rejected the notion of physicalism because he said, we know that our minds are important to our fitness um, as biological entities. Um, and uh, But once you reject physicalism, then you can have free will. Now, the um, most famous defender of free will is Robert Kane. He um, was editor of the Oxford Anthology on free will, so he's uh, very held in very high regard, um, despite the fact that he believes in genuine free will. Um, and nearly everyone else takes the opposite view. His idea of free will is based on three principles. One of them is alternate possibilities that you must, even given your exact brain state, your exact physical state at the time, you must have alternate possibilities for making uh, alternate decisions at this given moment. Um, the second one is self-forming actions that you're, you create your current self, your, um, uh, by your history of, um, these free decisions. And th the third one, I can't even remember it, but, the idea is that, uh, oh, it's ultimate responsibility, that you're ultimately responsible for your current brain state because you're free through your history of self-forming actions um, to alter, if you like, to cause a slight swerve in your present brain state um, based on your history uh, of previous decisions. Now, this theory um, needn't imply uh, sort of social conservatives. In fact, it implies, as Kate makes clear, that if you're brought up in a kind of highly underprivileged environment, mm -hmm. you won't have the ability of uh, making such self-forming actions. And so you would have less responsibility that say that someone who's wealthy and well brought up and suddenly decides to swindle the company, um, you know, is more culpable than someone who is uh, born in a ghetto and kind of never had a chance in life. Um, uh, so uh, what I was going to say right at the end of this is that even with that theory, which I believe is true Keynes theory that doesn't give you um, of itself a system of ethics to live by 
And that has to come from somewhere else. You know, whether it comes from God or the universe or something, um, I don't know. I don't attempt to answer it in my book, but um, that's it. You have to have some sort of religious or non-religious ground right. uh, your system of ethics. That's where this all gets like really kind of confusing, though, is like... You know, we bring up like ethics. You know, if like like the, the the system that you're describing to me, like like if it's not math and probabilities, you know, but yet there's laws governing something governing certain laws of of, of creation and manifestation. Those two ideas to me, um point to the same idea that there is some, some source of universal consciousness, a Godhead. But at the same time, and, and that's, you know, without that, without either laws or math or God, then what we're left with is chaos. So I don't know how you... And then, like, free will, too. If it's just God and math, then we don't really have free will. But we do have free will, so that must mean it's chaos. Or maybe we're just given a limited amount of leeway to create the illusion of free will. I don't know. I don't understand this. Mm. Yes. Well... <clears throat> I mean, I, I certainly believe that we have to, if you like, create our own um, form of um, morality and try the best we can to live by it. But on the other hand, there are certain things you, you think are absolute um, evils in the world, if you like, um, you know, I, um, so the world has an ethical dimension, which doesn't really come into my theory and is, isn't really explained by it. Um, in fact, I asked, um, there's a, a professor who was, when I was doing my MA in Reading, um, one of the reasons I went to Reading was that, uh, Professor Galen Strawson, and he kind of came out as a panpsychist, which is a very much a minority position, like probably maybe 5% of philosophers take this view. Um, so that was one of the reasons I went to Reading to do my MA. But then um, I asked him at a conference recently um, about, ethics and um, because he one of the things he said in one of his papers that, that there's an absolute ethical system and I asked him how do you know because he is not a person with a religious belief and I asked him well where does your system of ethics comes from and he just said he didn't know and um, 
but he he was sure there was some sort of absolute ethics, mm. um, if you like, that's not just personal opinion. But he couldn't fit in um, to his world view. And so I asked him, well, how come you believe this if you can't um, fit it into your world view? And he said, well, I just can't. I just believe it so. And, you know, if we don't know, then we should just say so. So that was his view. And I, I think I'm coming more to that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's sort of like the view of like, it's. I know it's there, but I don't know why or where. Yes, yeah. And I, I mean, there might be something religious, um, behind it uh, i mean well, i guess it depends on how you define religion too you know what i mean yeah I mean, what we're really looking at here is consciousness awareness you know how things have come into being how things disappear into be being and how we're having this experience which i think yes. a lot of times gets confused as religion but really it's trying to find an explanation for our existence Yes. And our experience, why we have this experience. This is the most bizarre experience that I could have ever imagined. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't, um, really give a good answer to that. <laughs> I know I was, um, mm -hmm. when I, I, um, I have been an atheist in the past mm -hmm. and um, I have been, um, well, I st still am. I haven't been to meetings recently, but I, I've been a Quaker. Now that's uh, uh, a kind of very, very open kind of religion. Uh, um, so, I, I would say that I, I sort of do believe in God and an absolute ethical system, but I couldn't prove it. It's just like a kind of plump for that, if you like. <laughs> uh, but I don't believe in uh, uh, an afterlife. You know, I think we're finite creatures, and once we're done, that's it. Um, yeah. So how does your philosophy of pan-idealism, what does it contribute to the world? Well, I, I think it's, I mean, I think the mind-body problem is a, an important one to solve. And it, it, it becomes at least partly solvable if you take up this position. And also, par paradoxically, it's um, more realistic than physicalism. I mean, they have, um, there's this um, kind of uh, accusation that's put on the idealists, where we, by idealism in the philosophical sense, we're saying that everything is grounded in mind and that, that everything is that is not mind is kind of derived from that. So physics is entirely derived from mine. But my version of 
uh, idealism, pan-idealism, which combines pan-psychism with idealism, is far more realistic than um, physicalism. It, it gives you a, a, a it gives you a much better definition and a much better understanding of what it, uh, it, it is for a thing to be real than does uh, physicalism. Physicalism just tells you mathematical structures uh, and mathematical laws. So it, it dissolves the world into an abstraction if you look at it closely. And in fact, there are uh, physicalists who call themselves structuralists who say that there's um, all there is to the world is mathematical structure, nothing else. Um, but I, pan idealism says um, that physicalists have a catalogue of things in the world, like atoms and cats and galaxies and so on. Uh, but the, but physically say that all there is to these things is just mathematical structure. They're just abstractions. But my one, um, pan idealism has the same catalog of entities, essentially. Um, but it says that these things are primitive minds. They're centers of experience. Maybe they can't think. Most can't think. And they're centers of agency they can do things in the world mm -hmm. uh, that's a very concrete and familiar idea um <clears throat> so it, it, it gives um despite the fact that most people think that idealism is abstract and unreal somehow pan-idealism gives you a greater sense of reality mm -hmm. It sounds a little similar to, uh, and correct me, you know, if I'm wrong. You know, I've had guests on my show talking about simulation theory, you know, and in simulation theory, theory, you know, like like everything is just a simulation running through the probabilities, like we've talked mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. However, within that theory or within that structure, you have two types of things going on. You have like, like, say you're playing a video game, and you have these characters that are just running the program over and over and over again. Yeah. They think they're aware. They think they're doing their thing, but they're really not. They're just running the program. And then you have actual players who are actually in control and trying the to navigate through fun. the game. Yeah. That's right. And um, you say, uh, in my theory... Um, Computers, classic, let's stick to classical computers for the moment. Um, according to my theory, a computer is a system of very simple minds. Mm -hmm. But, and that's all it is, the foundational level, but it doesn't have the organizational level, if you like, at the system level. It, it doesn't have um, anything right, to... It's missing to, the programmer. Well, that's it. 
but it's also doesn't it isn't holistic right. when um when or how was I going to say a, a computer essentially is a clock going very very fast and a system of switches and so all a computer is really mm-hmm. a vast selection of switches on this little clock and you can explain everything about the performance of this computer what is happening just by explaining what the clock is doing and what these switches are doing and you can have a complete explanation of the computer's behavior at this level of uh, the clock and the switches and there's no need to invoke uh, consciousness so we had this robot that was controlled by a classical computer um, even if it passed the Turing test you know it could uh, imitate a human being and it could have a perfect simulation mm-hmm. of pain behavior and pain responses then there's no reason to believe it will be consciousness because the full explanation uh, for its behavior would be at this very low level. And the fact that it would, it would have consciousness wouldn't add anything at this top level, which we have. And there's no reason to suppose that we can be simulated by classical computers. Right. Definitely. I, I agree with you, I guess, as a classical computer idea. <clears throat> How about on a quantum computer level? Right. Okay. I I have a, a little bit about this in my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 the um Quantum computers, in fact, <clears throat> you can actually uh, go online and learn about quantum computing. There's no charge for this. And you can learn to program. You can actually run your quantum computing programs on a simulated quantum computer. You can even, for free, run your programs on a um, real quantum computer. You know, IBM supplied, made available computers for anyone to log in to the internet and mm-hmm. play with them because they want and other companies also of course because they want more people to gain expertise um, and you have uh, yeah so quantum computers run on qubits which are like quantum bits which you can entangle and uh, do various uh, things to these quantum bits, and then you measure the results. And because quantum theory is a statistical theory, you have to run the same program many, many times, and you you get the statistics out, and it um, it, the results agree 
with quantum mechanics, uh, uh, apart from, uh, if you like, slight defects in current machines, which they're trying to wire now. Um, but e even present-day quantum computers don't have this kind of holistic um, nature that we have, that like the um, quantum programs that I've run, run with on computers with just five qubits, which is enough to really um, simulate a very, very simple molecule. That's all they can do. Um, but who knows what will happen to quantum computers in the future. Um, but there's no reason in principle why um, quantum computers, if you like, couldn't become uh, sort of fully conscious. But that is kind of centuries, if, uh, if not millennia away before that, that sort of thing will happen. How does things like near-death experience or out-of-body experience fall into pan-idealism? Um, that, I'm not sure. I tend to be skeptical about these things. So, um, I mean, I, I don't think they should be um, rejected out of hand. And I, I mean, a lot of arguments uh, about people who reject these ideas uh, do them uh, on principle, if you like. They assume physicalism or assume some physical theory and then say, well, because this is true, out-of-body uh, out body experiences and near-death experiences can't happen. Um, possibly, you know, they rule this out from the get-go. Um, I, I would say that I still remain skeptical about them, but they should be tackled um, using the same evidence as any other scientific inquiry um you know there, there's a famous quote by skeptics saying that um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence um that isn't true it, it, extraordinary claims require exactly the same evidence as anything else you know you don't um they kind of bias the um thing from the get-go um you, what you would have to do i think you you would have to um my feeling is you my one i specialize in i think is trying to understand everyday commonplace human experiences i i'm and I think once you have a good theory of that that's agreed, then you can go 
on to give, uh, if you like, explanations of, of paranormal f- phenomena, if you f- find evidence mm-hmm. for that. So how about psychic abilities? You know, like things like, like, like what you're doing with consciousness, and I don't think this is a far-out idea, the idea of telepathy, you know, that our right. consciousness can talk to somebody else's consciousness without the physical body. But if that is happening, then that does eliminate Physical, physical. Uh, I can't pronounce the word, but you know what I'm physical talking about. It, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, <clears throat> right. I mean, one thing people do tend to invoke um, if they want to try to explain telepathy or things like that is. Um, to invoke quantum mechanics mm-hmm. um, to explain these. But I think you can't just say quantum mechanics gives a specific... Uh, you have to be specific about your explanation, how quantum mechanics does this. Now, So you have to prove that the phenomenon, or be confident that the phenomenon exists. Then you have to give a mechanism in terms of quantum mechanics as to how this might um, be explained. Or, in theory, in pan-idealism, you could give uh, an explanation uh, at the level of mind, if if you like, below the level of physics. Um, but um, for that, you would you would need, um, again, this, this idea that there's one underlying mind that kind of s- subsumes everything might be more promising. I mean, I, what I do in my book, I do give a history of quantum mechanics. And I show um, how um, quantum mechanics, eventually it came to be shown that our universe is non-local. So things at um, two very distantly separated things, Mm -hmm. uh, positions of space-time, uh, are correlated, and there have been ex- experiments to show that. Yeah, the quantum um, spooky action at a distance. Yeah, that's what Einstein called it, mm-hmm. and I mean, it, it is. But I think once, see, there's this kind of myth, a lot, myth that Einstein didn't accept quantum mechanics, and that he rejected it, and he was proven wrong. But um, it's a very strange thing, the history of quantum mechanics, that uh, um, he made kind of about a dozen contributions to quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody in the history of quantum mechanics has produced quite so much, you know, original work in the field of quantum mechanics. And then in 1927, there's this big conference in Solvay that 
to discuss quantum mechanics, amongst other things. And some of the speakers there um, uh, who were in favor of uh, what's called the Copenhagen interpretation, um, they claimed that quantum mechanics was a closed mathematical system. Um, you, you couldn't find out any more about it, you know, which is a very strange claim for a scientist to make. Usually the claim but made by scientists is we have this theory, all theories are provisional, and they could be open to improvement as time goes on. But it, it, so it was quite a narrow claim. Really. And then uh, um, sort of in the 1930s, Einstein, together with Podolsky and Rosen, um, discovered a new feature of um quantum mechanics, which wasn't known before, and that was the theory of entanglement, which was uh, you started with two particles in the same place, you send them off in opposite directions, and even though there couldn't be communication between them, even by light, they were still correlated. Mm -hmm. Einstein thought there would be hidden variables to explain this that, that um, most people don't think that's true but it, it, it was a new concept of his entanglement he found a special case him and his colleagues um, Schrodinger we talked about his equation mm -hmm. before he kind of generalized this and sh uh, gave a definition of entanglement and you know, gave a mathematical condition of what it was for two systems to be entangled. And then there was a guy called Bell who um, came along much, much later um, and showed how this idea could prove that our universe was non-local. Um, it could be done experimentally. It was only uh, kind of about a, a decade after that. It was only in the 1980s that physicists were able to do the experiment and show that the universe is indeed non-local. That two particles starting from one particular point go off in opposite directions and they have um, correlated properties. But what Bell showed was that the these correlations um, couldn't be explained by hidden variables. And so there's this long history, if you, if you like, which Einstein instigated, which led to this fabulous new discovery in quantum mechanics. And yet Einstein is kind of written out as, you know, yeah. being buddy with daddy and old hat to understand the theory. Mm. But Einstein in, yeah. mm. Einstein, in his paper with Podolsky and Rosen, um, they actually, as a starting assumption, uh, said, we assume that quantum mechanics is correct in all its mathematical um, predictions. So he accepted it was correct but he said there's another thing, whether it's a complete theory. 
and he showed that if it were, um, it it couldn't be complete, uh, and less there were oh, drops a glass doesn't matter. Um, uh, lost my thread. That unless there were hidden variables, now mm. Bell showed that the hidden variables loophole uh was no good um, and so our universe must be non-local hmm. uh, yeah i mean i don't know <clears throat> then you know the idea of the universe not being not being non-local means it's a projection it's a right well but then you have to ask, what is the projection of? And it brings us back again in that circular mm. thing of you know, whether there's a, a single consciousness or maybe, I mean, it could be even simple. Maybe it's not even a consciousness. Maybe it's just a vibration that somehow started. Mm. It's not yeah. even aware, but it's creating some type of awareness or an illusion of awareness. Mm. You know? It's strange. Is it to me? I think about the stuff and I just keep going in circles and I can't get to yeah. an answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean the original, the reason that entanglement and non-locality exists in the universe is because the wave function isn't just the normal wave in space and time. It would be if you're just considering a, a wave function, a, um, a single particle on its own. Mm -hmm. But the wave function of the universe is supposed to be a function of the configuration of all the particles. Um, so it's it's a function on configuration space, right. what they right. call configuration space. And um, that's the reason for the non-locality. But mm. what is going on, the probability of it getting experimental results defend, depends on the configuration of the entirety of particles in the universe. Um, yeah. It's so weird. <laughs> it's mm. such a weird, yeah. weird thing trying to explain... Yeah. Some of the simple things that we experience, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's very odd. Like, yeah. Like, I can't even explain to you why I'm having thoughts and asking you questions. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really make sense. No. Why are we communicating? I don't know. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, um, I don't know. It, I was, you know, back to, you know, I believe in, you know, the psychic stuff. I believe that people probably yes. <clears throat> do have the ability to use telepathy yeah. and connect our thoughts, yes. which means that to me that, that we're, we are at the very least energy, hmm. you know, where we're all originating some, from some type of energy or our energies are, are close enough that they can cross paths and communicate. Yeah. You know, where does this, your theory, how does that go with the idea that everything is just energy? 
Okay. Um, <clears throat> in my view, um, <clears throat> in my view, um, energy is a concept from physics. So I would. At, at the basic level of my theory, you have centers of experience which are just, they're able to perceive um, their surroundings and not just the things that are immediately touching them, but they, they can perceive their surroundings and they can perceive the structure, their percepts have structures, mm -hmm. just as, um, you know, you're looking at your cup and it has a certain shape, um, they can perceive, and they can also act on their percepts, they have agency, so that's all there is at the ground level. Mm -hmm. In um, energy, is a physical concept, so it lies at the level of physics. So it lies above the um, the foundational level that I want to put in. So I want to explain energy in terms of the these ground level things, which are just mentalistic terms, um, and. Also, we, we talked earlier about interpretations of quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. um, some people want to um, use interpretations of quantum mechanics which involve the mind. They think that's a good way to get a hold of the mind-body problem because uh, quantum mechanics seems to involve measurement. The concept of measurement. I think a lot of that too comes from the observer effect. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's an important thing in um, quantum mechanics when you're measuring something. It, it's not uh, exactly get finding out the state of something that pre-exists. I mean, this this is um, the whole talk about. Bell and um, proving the non-locality. He, he proved one of the things Bell proved was that you have, um, <coughs> if you like, the the um, when you're measuring it, you're not measuring something that the particle has. Um, without disturbing it. It's an interaction between the measuring apparatus and the thing you're measuring. And by moving your apparatus into a different direction, um, you can, uh, you in fact disturb it and you can actually prove that the, the, th the thing you measured didn't exist before you actually moved it, it's mm -hmm. actually an inter, it doesn't belong to the particle alone. It's an interaction between the particle and the measuring apparatus. Um, I mean, this was known 
way back in the early days of quantum mechanics, like um, Niels Bohr and the Copenhagen School. That's what one good thing they did. Um, they realized that. Um, but again, it, it wasn't proven experimentally and, until decades later, you know, half a century later. Um, so the observer effect is not real. But, um, oh no, it is <clears throat> real. That they, um, that things don't have properties independent of the observer. Like in classical things, in, in a classical, uh, situation, if you imagine that we were living in the classical world and you're trying to measure the speed of a stream, you can sort of put a little water wheel into the water and work out how fast it's turning. And that gives you the um, speed of the strain, but it also disturbs the strain. And so it might not give you an accurate reading. And you, you say, well, classically, we could reduce the size of the water wheel down and down and down and make the... Um, disturbance as small as we wish now that doesn't happen what happens is that um, you um, you can't do that um, actually this is the thing to do with energy as well you you um, energy comes in quanta and the the quantum quantum of energy exchange between the object being measured and the measuring apparatus and they can't be squeezed down uh, below certain limits um, there's this thing Heisen, Heisenberg proof that you can't measure, if you try and measure position very accurately um the momentum of the particle becomes completely uh, indeterminate and you, it's kind of spread out all over the place. If you try to measure the momentum exactly, you can't measure where the position is. You can measure it um, quite closely, but you can never get both things uh, down below a certain limit. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this, this thing about, um, Bell's inequality and non-locality of measurement over here will disturb or change what's going on over there in two distant regions. You know, a measurement in region A affects, uh, uh, what's going on with an entangled particle light years away. And it's not as the founders of quantum theory thought that is some uh, ma- mathematical disturbance. It's something much weirder than that. It's not bound by space or time. Right. Well, one of the unusual things about that, too, is <clears throat> that the reaction between the particles, you know, is instantaneous rather than you yeah. know the speed of light or speed of sound. It's 
the speed of instant, yeah. you know, is, is, it's instant, you know, yes. which makes me sometimes I wonder, like, is there a thing called the speed of thought or the speed of consciousness? Mm. Yeah. Well, the, the basic reason for the, um, this interaction in being instantaneous is that the wave function it's usually represented by the Greek letter psi, is a function of the entire configuration. So you disturb a bit of the configuration. You know, you you disturb the entire configuration of everywhere. Um, One of the things I have is that I... Um, it is a bit like perception, you know, perception, you have this instant, um, understanding of the whole of your surroundings. I mean, that, that's why I think they, if you like, the wave function is some sort of perceptual field. Um, yeah. Hmm. Fascinating. So I want to thank you for, for coming on today. And before we wrap it up, well, one, I'm going to say, like, I know this episode is going to leave people scratching their heads. That's for sure. Okay. <laughs> and I'm probably going to be scratching my head for the rest of the day trying to think about this stuff. Um, but where's the best place for my listeners to find you and find your book? Okay. I have a, I have a website, um, which is, um, Pan, panidealism.com. And so that has a hyphen between the pan and the idealism. So pan-idealism.com. That's my website. And you'll find links to my, uh, um, latest book and my other books. And you'll find, uh, links to my YouTube channel and my email address. So all the links are are there on that webpage. Awesome. I'll put a link to your webpage in notes of this episode so my listeners can find you, get your books, contact you if you have any questions. Okay, and I'll I'll give, send you a couple of additional links as well. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com. Message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon and it will change your life. 
Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulio.